You're listening to the sermon audio from Covenant Church at Tuscaloosa. Our prayers that this encourages you in the Lord. Well, the beginning of Acts chapter 21, of course, um, is, is the uh, conclusion of what we saw a few weeks back, actually around a month or so, a little over a month ago, in, at the end of Acts chapter 20. Paul's missionary journeys have ended. He had three primary missionary journeys. They've ended, and he has, um, and, and by his conviction and call from the Holy Spirit, as we saw in Acts chapter 20, he's making his way towards Jerusalem. Um, if you remember, at the end of 20, he, he goes to Miletus, and he meets there with the Ephesian elders. He, he actually bypasses Ephesus, um, and, and we explained that earlier, but he, he bypasses Ephesus and then gets to Miletus and calls the Ephesian elders in and lets them know what's going to happen, and, and they're sad, and it's a really dramatic scene. And now as we pick up in 21, it's when they part. And if you look down at verse 1 and it says, And when we had parted from them and set sail. I want to point out to you one really important word that you might overlook, but, but that Luke, the author of the book of Acts, uses we here. Um, meaning that Luke is, is now back with them. And, and this is a first-hand account. Luke is writing based on things that he is personally seeing and personally experiencing and in uh, uh, the first seven verses of Acts chapter 21, it tells how this, this group, now that's making its way to Jerusalem, uh, made its way from Miletus down to Caesarea. And on that journey, they began on a small ship. They stopped at a small place at Kos. And from Kos, if, if you read in uh, the first seven verses, they went from Kos to Rhodes. From there, they traveled to Patara, then to Cyprus, and then on to Tyre. Well, when they get to Tyre, um, that we're told that there they would unload the ship's cargo. So evidently, this isn't a, a carnival cruise line. I mean, they didn't buy tickets for this ship. It seems that they have sort of just gotten on board of a ship that's heading in the direction, a cargo ship that's heading in the direction that they desire to go. Well, when this ship um, lands in Tyre, the, uh, the ship unloads its cargo. But as they spend some time in Tyre, as we see, they're going to spend about seven days in Tyre. What they do, and this is normal for Paul um, and, and his counterparts, is they find disciples. And as they find the disciples, they remain there seven days. And, and, and Luke notes, and this is going to mean something uh, more at the end, I think, when we look at the application. But Luke notes here that in finding these disciples, and this is interesting, that through the Spirit, they're telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. And so they don't want Paul to make his way to Jerusalem. We know back in chapter 20 that Paul had been warned by the Spirit that uh, in, in Jerusalem essentially would come hardship. Well, after seven days, they left, and, and it's, a, it's again a really dramatic scene. I encourage you to read it. As they, it says, the men, the women, and the children, so all of the families of these disciples that they found in Tyre, make their way to the beach where Paul and his counterparts are going to get on this ship and continue their journey, and they gather there on the sand, and they, and they pray. And then Paul and his posse board the ship in return, and they go to Ptolemaeus, and in Ptolemaeus they stayed one day. We pick up in verses 8 through 15. We see Paul get to Caesarea. In Caesarea, there's a few interesting encounters. He, he goes to Philip the Evangelist's house. We've seen Philip in, in our study in the book of Acts, but um, it, it's mentioned that Philip has four unmarried daughters that are prophesying. We don't know for sure what they prophesy. And, and really, if you read this as a narrative, this is sort of a jarring uh, piece of information. J just because it seems sort of like random. But remember that, that Luke is an historian. 
And there's actually a, a good bit of history, secular history, written around this time that, that mention the influence of these four women who are prophetesses. And they continue to be influential in the kingdom, and they continue to do a great work. But what Luke is doing, I think, fr- from a historical standpoint, is he's giving us more evidence and, and more opportunity for those that would read this in the first century to say, hey, these women were mentioned, they were there, we know who they are, so let's go see if this is true, if in fact they wanted to see if it was true. So, so you have Philip the Evangelist and his daughters. And then Paul is met by a prophet named Agabus. And, and Agabus acts out in dramatic fashion. What the Spirit has told him is going to happen to Paul when he gets to Jerusalem. He actually takes Paul's belt and ties Paul up. And he says, this is what it's going to be like. I'm paraphrasing. But this is what it's going to be like when you get to Jerusalem. So that's at least our second warning that's documented of, of Paul and, and what to expect, what's being predicted as he makes his way towards Jerusalem. I want, I want to read to you verse 15 to see how this impacted Paul and his companions. And it says, and, and after these days we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. In fact, I didn't mention this, but in verses 13 and 14, after Agabus's prophecy Luke, the author, says, we, we encouraged Paul not to go. We are the ones that, we are also a part of the group that's saying, hey, Paul, are, are you sure about going to Jerusalem? And Paul's response is, why are you making me weep? This is the direction that they are headed. And then in verses 17 through 26, this group makes it to Jerusalem um, upon their arrival in Jerusalem, they meet with James and the apostles. And, and Paul has one, one task that he wants to accomplish like out of the gate as he meets with his brothers in Jerusalem. And he's already met with them. Um, if you remember the conversation that they had um, a few chapters back in regards to how the Jews and the Gentiles were to relate. And they had some resolve there and they moved on and they sort of cleared that up, we thought... And so Paul makes his way back to James and the apostles, and he's sharing with them, essentially, he's bragging on what the Lord has done among the Gentiles. And the Bible says that they all glorified God for the work that the Lord had done. Well, James responds with a rumor, essentially. And the rumor is is that Paul is teaching, Paul is teaching Gentiles and new Jewish converts in these other places that they do not have to adhere to the law and can basically forget everything that Moses taught. Well, then James tells him of what I want to just call a nasty letter that they wrote back to some of the new Gentile Christians, essentially letting them know um, the, the things that they had to adhere to as it relates to Jewish law and the Mosaic law and their customs. And essentially what they're saying in this letter is that if you can't do these things, then you're not one of us. So keep that in mind as we look at this next part. They have an idea. And their idea for Paul is is this. He says, hey, we have these four Hebrew men who are under a vow. 
And evidently they were poor Hebrew men because they couldn't afford, they couldn't afford to make their way into this ceremonial cleansing. And, and so the idea of James and the apostles is, is, hey, Paul, listen, just do what we tell you. That's what they say. Do what we tell you to do. We have these four Hebrew men. We want you to pay their way as they make their way into the temple and, and, and have these seven days of purifying and cleansing and all under the Mosaic law. And we want you to do this to, short, uh, to sort of shut down the naysayers. Like, let's prove to these people in Jerusalem. No, I'm not going to say Lank. Look, so let's prove to these people in Jerusalem that you are actually a Jew and you do actually care about Jewish law and Mosaic law and our customs. And friends, Paul agrees. And, and, and I'll get to that more here in just a second. But Paul agrees. I want to read to you verse 26. It says, Then Paul took the men... And the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. Now I want to pick up reading. We're going to read this line by line in verse 27. And so it says, When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, those are Jews from Ephesus, and if you remember our journey in Ephesus, things got really, really, really heated in Ephesus, there were riots, there was a lot going on there. So some Jews from Asia, from Ephesus, see him in the temple. That is, they see Paul. And these Jews from Asia stir up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. And this is what they cry out in verse 28. Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. Luke lets us know in 29, for they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Friends, Paul had not brought Trophimus into the temple. These Jews from Ephesus have sort of stalked him down and made their way to Jerusalem, and, and they're making a scene. But, but, but I do want to note that the Lord and His sovereignty is over everything. That's still true today, and it was certainly true in the first century. And, and so Paul isn't actually able to complete the series of purification that he agreed to complete. Verse 30. It says, Then all the, all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together, and they seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple. And at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the, court, of, of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. And so, 32, he at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Okay, so imagine this scene. This isn't the first time or the second time or even the third time that we've seen Paul with hands laid on him and him being dragged into the city center, to the temple center, and, and he's being beaten. And now the Roman officials come in. Verse er, <clears throat> excuse me, 34, no, 33. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. And he inquired who he was and what he had done. But some in the crowd were shouting one thing and some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd, for the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. Now, beginning in verse 37, I, I want you to see this, and I want to make this point, like Paul is about to really flex on him right here, okay? 
Watch what he does. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? Now, in our translation, we don't pick up on what's going on here until we continue to read. And the tribune says, and he said, Do you know Greek? And so Paul asked the tribune in Greek, May I say something to you? So the tribune, his mind is racing at this point. Verse 38, he says, Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? So evidently, there was a revolt, an attempted revolt from an Egyptian who led the revolt, who had led 4,000 men out into the wilderness. He was unsuccessful, but think of him as like, like an Osama bin Laden type figure. They still hadn't found him. And so this tribune, when Paul speaks to him in Greek, he's looking at him and knows that he's a Jew. He's like, there's definitely something different about this guy. Like, what is all this stir about? He wasn't able really to understand it because, as we read in the text, one group is saying this, one group is saying that. There's so much chaos, he can't really do a proper investigation. So verse 39, Paul replied, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia a citizen of no obscure city, I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. Now he's still speaking in Greek here. Now watch this. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, now before we jump into 22, I want you to notice how Jewish this address is. Paul is emphasizing in every way that he can with all of the intellectual ability that God's given him, with all of the experiences that, uh, that he's had in the Jewish community as a Jew, as a Pharisee that God's given him. He's trying to emphasize with everything in his being that being a Jew was the way that brought salvation, not in the sense of the blood that was in his veins, but through Jesus Christ. Now, I want... Before we read this too, three times in the book of Acts, we have Paul's testimony. Three times. There's three different occasions. When we get to Acts 26, we're going to see him give this exact same testimony before King Agrippa. And I think that's worth noting because, again, Luke's intent, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is to show us clearly the apostolic calling and authority and power of the Apostle Paul, that he did, in fact, meet with Jesus Christ on that road to Damascus. So this is Paul's address in the Hebrew language. He's raised his hand. There's a hush among the crowd. And he says, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I'm born, I'm sorry, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus and Cilicia but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. Verse 4, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. Verse 6, As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly 
shown around me. And, and I know if you're familiar with Scripture, you're familiar with the, with the story and what's going down here, but, but just to be sure, we're on the same page. The Apostle Paul had set his life and heart and everything against killing Christians. On the road to Damascus, his intent was to continue, as he says in his own testimony, to basically destroy or at least to shut down or shut up the men and the women, dragging them out of their houses so that they would stop proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 7. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me. This is after verse 6 says, On his way, a great light from heaven shone around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. Verse 11 says, And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will. And notice the Hebrew word for the Lord here, for Yahweh here, he uses of Jesus. To see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance. This is Paul continuing his testimony. And saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself standing by, approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. Verse 21, And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Now, this address would have gone much smoother had Paul left out one particular part. I want you to look back at verse 21. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away, period. If there would have been a period there, the address would have gone much smoother. But their issue with Paul is his welcoming in of Gentiles and calling them the same family as of the family of God. Now look at 22. It says, up to this word. What word? Gentiles. Up to this word they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging. That's basically, they ask you a question, and if they don't think you're telling the truth, they hit you until they think you're telling the truth. 
to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said, and Paul's flexing again here, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Well, Paul says, But I'm a citizen by birth. Verse 29, so those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. Now that'll conclude our journey through this narrative. But I think there are some tremendous takeaways, and there's three of them. And the first one is this, and and you probably already know this, but the first takeaway is that Paul wasn't perfect. There is a temptation for us to read Scripture and to think of guys like Paul. Certainly he was used in tremendous ways. Certainly the ministry of Paul, we are benefiting from it this, this morning. That There have been countless numbers of Christians over the centuries that have benefited from the ministry of the Apostle Paul. But Paul was not superhuman. Paul was not a Messiah. Paul wasn't God. Paul was a human, and Paul was wrong to compromise the gospel in participating in the vow, the ceremonial cleansing. And if you know much about the Mosaic law, you know what was subsequent to that was sacrifice. Paul agreed to go along with these four Hebrew men who were under a vow to participate in the cleansing and to do their ceremonial deal that would have ended in a sacrifice. And the sacrifice was for the remission and the forgiveness and the cleansing of sin. And at this point, because of the person and the work of Jesus Christ, and Paul had preached this and preached this and preached this, and this message is the message that had got him beaten, almost got him killed, it's gotten him imprisoned, and it will be the message that ultimately leads to his death. And I think Paul is wrong under the sake of peace, under the name of peace, with his deep desire to please people, to go along with this vow. He was in their house, and they asked him to do it. He understood their logic. We would probably understand his logic. We might even justify it by saying, hey, it's just one little deal. He doesn't really believe it. He's just doing it to sort of keep the peace. Maybe if Paul does this, it it opens gospel doors in the future. We could justify it. Paul could have justified it, but his actions were inconsistent with what he had taught and what he had even argued. And God, graciously, even though it was through a mob, even though it involved beating, God graciously did not allow Paul to go through with it in completion. Now, that might be a side note to you, but, but, but I think about it in my own life when through certain confrontation or certain exposure or, or just being found out, just being found out, as painful as that is, that is in fact God graciously and faithfully shutting us down before we go too far. Because left to ourselves, we'll go too far. I mean, the, the judgment of God is for Him to remove Himself. 
The judgment of God is for him to remove his hand of protection. And so I, like, I see this as, as it's secondary to the text, but I do see this as a gracious act from God that Paul did not go through because now these Jews would have something to look back to as Paul continued to try to argue the gospel and communicate the gospel. They would say, yeah, you're preaching this, brother, but you did this. Do you ever wonder when to take a stand? Have you considered or are you considering currently when you should say no? You know what? I'm not doing that. Regardless of the consequence. Regardless of who's offended. Regardless of what friendships you may lose. Regardless of what it might mean for your occupation. Regardless. We should be warned, we, me, you, of our tendency to be sucked into pleasing people so much so that we will even be willing to compromise what we know to be the most important thing. And if we're wondering, if you're wondering, when do I say no? Like, when do I put my foot down? It's when the very Word of God is denied. Particularly the Gospel itself. Brothers and sisters in Christ and friends, there is never a reason, there is never, ever, ever a reason, even if it looks like losing to the world, or even it looks like we've lost in the eyes of the church, there is never, ever, ever, ever a reason to forsake or to deny the very hope that we stand on. We are passionate people in our culture, in the South, we are passionate people and we have strong convictions. And what we have the strongest convictions about, show. We should have strong convictions about strong things. And the gospel is the strongest. The second thing that I noticed, Paul wasn't perfect. Secondly, Paul had a category for suffering to the glory of God. Now, I really wrestled with this part. I spent, I spent hours, literally hours, wrestling with this part, um, considering what we just discussed about what I think is Paul's apparent uh, lack of judgment, or, or, or just, I don't know what was going through his mind when he agreed to go on through this vow, but, but with that, in, in that context, I struggled with this part because Paul had multiple well-respected, well-meaning brothers and sisters telling him, not to go to Jerusalem. Think about that. Agabus. He comes and acts it out and ties him up. It's like, hey, this is going to happen, brother. Even Luke and his counterparts didn't want him to go. These genuinely believed that the Lord wouldn't want Paul to go into a place that guaranteed him harm. All right, are you with me? Let's put ourselves in those shoes with our loved ones. There's guaranteed harm. The warnings are everywhere. I don't think it's too out of the way for us to think we would look at our loved one and say, hey, is this, should you go? Like, is this a good idea? 
Like how many different warnings does the Holy Spirit have to give you before you go, oh, He doesn't want me to go? Through the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit through prophets, and etc. They all said it, would, it was going to be bad. And, and, and so I thought to myself, like he had a little lapse of judgment with the vow thing. Well, what's going on with Paul? Is he just hard-headed? Like, is he just being hard-headed here? I don't think so. I, I think, first, let me say this. There is a difference in prediction and prohibition. Through all of the Holy Spirit's prediction and telling of Paul what was going to happen, there was not one prohibition. It was never, hey, this is going to happen, so do not go. Brothers and sisters, the Holy Spirit is perfectly capable of saying, do not go. That's not what was said. Even when Agabus comes and prophesies, the message is not, do not go to Jerusalem. The message is, hey, when you go, if you go, like these things are going to happen to you. And so the interpretation of everybody around him is that, well, this must mean that uh, surely God, who's good, and he's our good, good father, even though they didn't sing it then, he's our good, good father, surely he wouldn't want you to go into a place where there was guaranteed harm. They had no category for it. But Paul had a category. Paul had a category of suffering for the glory of God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, I'm going to give you quite a few cross-references here. Just, just try to hang in there with me, note-takers. Jot them down and read them later. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 6-18, through 18, listen to the Apostle Paul as he writes to the church at Corinth. He says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, can I get an Amen. <sighs> Our inner self is being renewed in Christ day by day. For this light, and think of the afflictions we've just read about in these two chapters about Paul. If we went through that, none of us would say, oh, these are light. These light, momentary affliction is preparing. That's the key word. The, the, the NIV says achieving, preparing, achieving. It's not in vain. The affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are what? Seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. I love that word. Passing away. Momentary. But the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul had a theology of suffering. He had a category for suffering. The next cross-reference I want to show you is Romans chapter 8, 18 through 22, where he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Brothers and sisters, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Listen, for the creation was subjected to futility, that's because of sin, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it. Now, who's Him? Who subjected it? Well, that next prepositional phrase answers our question, because if it was Satan that subjected us to futility, it wouldn't be in hope. He subjected us, the Lord subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together as in the pains of childbirth until now. The screams on the labor and delivery floor are different than any other floor. 
because there's a baby coming. It hurts. I don't really know. I've seen it quite a few times. Looks like it hurts real bad. But when that baby comes, in the context, when that glory is revealed, the next cross-reference. 2 Corinthians 12, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that, I, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient. Now he's talking about this, this thorn in his flesh, what he calls a messenger of Satan. Three times Paul has asked the Lord for it to be removed, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in what? Weakness. He believed that God was good and that God was sovereign. He believed that God was good and that God was sovereign and therefore everything that came His way would fit in the category of Romans 8 verse 28 that all things, which means all things, work together for the good. Yes, the flogging is included. Yes, the beating is included. The afflictions are included. In fact, I don't even know that he has to say what he's saying in Romans chapter 8 if it weren't for suffering. The Bible does not avoid this topic. The Bible cracks it open. It says it's not in vain. And it's not going to compare to the glory that awaits those who have trusted Jesus Christ. Jesus had conversations with His disciples that were similar in Matthew chapter 16, 21-23. I'm spending a lot of time here because this, this is a difficult thing for us to to accept and to bow down to. From that time, Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. Does that sound familiar? 25 plus or minus years prior, Jesus is in Jerusalem and making His way to Jerusalem to suffer many things in Jerusalem. And suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day be raised. And Now, our buddy Peter here. And Peter took Him aside, the Messiah, the God-man, took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, For far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And brothers and sisters, that's the summary of our thinking. When we set our eyes on the things of man, we'll look at hard things and go, There's no way that's what God's called me to. Or, We'll obey the Lord and it gets hard and we'll be confused about Him and His love for us and who He is. We have to understand this. We will at best limp through our Christian life if we don't have a theology of suffering. And we don't understand that regardless of, of Christ's love for us and what He's accomplished for us, like that doesn't necessarily equal, regardless of what you hear preached on TV or whatever pulpit, that your life is going to be prosperous in the physical sense. It could mean the opposite. In John 16.33, Jesus was really clear and simple. He said, you're going to have trouble in this world. But take heart. I've overcome the world. Paul knew they could take it all. But they couldn't take Christ. Think about that. It shows the value that Christ was to Paul. You can have everything else. 
but you can't take Christ. And it wasn't because of Paul's hold on Christ. It was because of Christ's hold on Paul. That was his hope. So Paul had a category for suffering and, and evidently they did not. And again, I'm not trying to bash these, these friends of Paul. Like, I, I, I'm there. Like, I, I struggle here. Like, I would say the same thing to my sons or my daughter or to my spouse. I would be like, hey, are you sure that this is exactly what you should do? Like, like I, I get that, but they're interpreting and understanding what the Holy Spirit is doing wrongly. Because the Spirit had called Paul to Jerusalem and it was going to be difficult. A couple of questions to jot down. Are there things in your life right now that you know the Lord desires you to do, but you haven't because you're scared? Or to say it a better way, you haven't because you know they'll be hard. Has the Western culture so infiltrated our thinking that we think everything has to be easy? Or has your view of God decreased because you did what He wanted you to do and it was hard? It was hard. And that thinking is sort of like making a deal. Lord, I did my part, you didn't do your part. I think the application is for us to ask the Lord to give us a biblical category for suffering while being obedient to what He's called us to. Lastly, and I'll be quick here. Paul was resolute in God's call and his desire to see salvation. Paul knew God had called him to this. That's what this whole address is about. Christ Himself met Paul, and friends, you've picked up on this, met Paul as the most unlikely candidate and called him to this task. And that was enough to give Paul this unwavering resoluteness. But along with the call that God gave him and how resolute he was about his mission, God also gave him a desire for souls. He wanted to see people saved. Because look, this is what he knew. And we should all think this way. He knew if Jesus saved me, he can save you. He knew that there wasn't any sinner out there that was beyond the reach and the grasp and the power of the gospel. And so if we would have asked Paul, Paul, like, why are you willingly going into harm? Because I want to see people saved. What if you die? So be it. What if it's only one? Praise Jesus. He had a desire. like His resoluteness was rooted. It was rooted in what God had done in his heart to see people saved. Do we have that? Do you have that? Do, do I have that? I think if we're honest, to say it in the positive, maybe we've lost sight of it at times.
But the truth is, maybe some of us never really had it. Maybe we've just not been told, or maybe we just haven't considered the reality of why we're still here. If you're a Christian, this is why. This is why you're working where you work. This is why you live where you live. Everything a Christian does is in the context of the commission that God's given us. Christians don't have like little separate compartments for when we're Christians and when we're not. It's the whole thing, man. It's every day, it's everywhere. I'm really not like a doomsday political grandstander that annoys me. But I do think we have some harder days ahead of us here. I really do. And I think what the Lord's doing is I think He's raising up a generation of people that will have this kind of resoluteness. Committed to the call that God has placed on our lives. Rooted in a deep desire to see people saved. And to take this gospel to every corner of our lives. Having first believed it in every corner of our hearts. Taking this gospel to every corner of our lives. I want to close with a verse from Acts chapter 20. Verse 24, the Apostle Paul says, But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. My prayer this morning in response is that we all Bow down to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. We'd like to thank you for listening to the sermon audio from Covenant Church at Tuscaloosa. If you have any questions or would like to know more about our church, you can visit our website at www.covchurchtusk.com or you can email info at covchurchtusk.com. God bless.